This is an ABC podcast. I think the most common disputes about trees that damage neighbouring properties such as interfere with pipes or pools or fences or paving and that sort of thing. What happens when a tree over the fence is damaging your property? Coming up, the second in our four-part series on neighbour disputes. First, the Commonwealth Bank, the ANZ and Westpac have settled a giant class action. Without admitting wrongdoing, the three banks have agreed to pay $126 million in compensation to customers who were sold consumer credit insurance for credit cards or personal loans. Alex Blennerhassett is a senior associate with Slater & Gordon, the law firm which brought the action. Consumer credit insurance is a type of add-on insurance product which is typically sold alongside personal loans and credit cards. And the intention of this type of insurance is to cover a customer in circumstances they're unable to meet the repayments of their credit card or personal loan. Are we talking about what is colloquially known as junk insurance here? Yeah, that's right. So it has been referred quite frequently by ASIC as a form of junk insurance. So why does ASIC, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, refer to this as junk insurance? Often these products are sold without people's consent, without them being eligible to make a claim and with them having a relatively low claims loss ratio. So what that means is that for every dollar that is collected in premiums by the insurer, very little money is often going back to policyholders. And so when products are of such low value and they're sold in certain ways, they have been referred as junk insurance. And what was the illegal cause of action? The key causes of action were really unconscionable conduct. So when we talk about unconscionable conduct, we're talking about conduct that typically falls below community standards. And it was alleged by the applicants that the banks engaged in unconscionable conduct by continuing to sell consumer credit insurance policies that were of such poor value. It was also alleged by the applicants that the respondents, being the banks, engaged in misleading or deceptive conduct by selling these policies to people who often didn't provide their consent to purchase the policies or were not sufficiently informed that these products were optional products. Queenslander Christy Fordham is the lead plaintiff in proceedings against the Commonwealth Bank. It was in 2017 I decided to top up my loan and went through the process of applying for the loan. I was approved and when it got down to the nitty-gritty of signing the paperwork, then the insurance aspect was sprung on me and the discussion of if you don't take out this insurance, we're not going to be able to guarantee you're actually going to get approved for the loan, even though on the application it said that you had been approved. It was the last stages of the loan. And how much was the monthly premium on this uh, insurance? It was $25 a month. So you were a single mum of four kids, you were on Centrelink yes. benefits, you're not working. And at that point in time, you're also living with serious health problems. I think you had chronic fatigue syndrome and, and fibromyalgia, which, which is an inflammatory condition, um, yes. which is quite debilitating. It is. So you were paying this until 2020, this $25 mm-hmm. a month. What happened yes. in 2020? In 2020, the bank 
actually sent me a letter stating that the policy was no longer available to me as as such and that they were refunding the premiums that I have paid. And you found out at that point that because of your pre-existing health conditions, you would never have been eligible to make a claim under this policy. I would never have been able to claim. So if, for example, I had lost my Centrelink benefit or if my ex-husband stopped paying child support and my finances had changed dramatically and I no longer could afford my loan payment and went to make a claim on the loan with the insurance policy, I would never have been able to claim on it anyway. So you were paying $25 a month for an insurance policy that you could never avail yourself of? No, it was just shonky insurance. Victorian Mark Lockwood had a similar experience when back in 2015, he applied for a credit card with the Commonwealth Bank. So I was living with my parents at the time and I was a university student. I just started my first year in my bachelor's degree. And in May that year, I received a letter from the Commonwealth Bank with a brochure about their low fee MasterCard credit card. It seemed appealing. So we took all of our documents and went into the bank to sign up. So you went in to sign up and they were aware of your circumstances. You you were a student without work and you're living with your parents, who I think were also on Centrelink payments. Yeah, they are. What happened at that point? The minimum I could apply for was $500 on the card, according to the brochure. When we went in and we provided all our details to them, the person I was dealing with felt unsure that I would be approved for the $500. They managed to put it in for $400. So off the bat, I'm already thinking I'm I'm not going to get this. And as part of the application process, we came to that uh, credit card plus insurance. And it was just another step of the the application rather than something you could agree or disagree with. So I was signed up to this insurance program. And do you know how much the premiums were, which you paid over the life of the credit card? Yep. So it was based on every $100 spent that was owing at the end of the interest-free period. So by the end, from 2015 to June of 2022, I had paid about $114 in premiums. So not an enormous amount, but uh, still, if you're living on on limited funds, it's a burden. I wasn't eligible to claim this insurance, I found out, in about 2019. And this was sold as something that would help me if I was unable to make my minimum repayments each month. But it was lucky I never had to try and claim on that because I found I would have been ineligible because I was a student and not working. Some members of the class action say they were even unaware that they had signed up and were paying for insurance plans. Tracy Riley is the lead plaintiff in the ANZ proceedings. I got my credit card probably in the 2000s. So when I was young, I just thought, well, I needed a credit card. So I just went and got my credit card just to, you know, help me through life. And at that point, you were working and you were healthy? Yeah, I definitely was working, fit and healthy, yeah, living life, being happy. And then a few years later, your life circumstances changed. What happened? 
Yeah, so I was um, feeling a bit unwell, so I went and got some checks done, and I was diagnosed with a very rare eye cancer. Um, so yeah, my life then changed dramatically. You weren't able to work, your financial situation changed as well as your health situation, I assume? Yep, 100%. And you had a conversation with your bank. What did you discover? Yeah, so pretty much when I um, went to the bank to have a quick chat with them about making repayments, they advised me that I had an insurance on my credit card. My question to them straight away was, what insurance? Um, Like anybody would ask, if you don't know you've got something, you're always intrigued. What is it? What does it cover? And how much had you been paying in premiums on that insurance? It varied every month depending on what you spent every month. So some months you might have only been paying, you know, three, four dollars. It might have gone to twenty dollars. It varied every single month, unbeknownst to myself that that was the way that it worked. So you discover that you'd been paying insurance for years. That's great because presumably then you might be eligible for a payout. What happened at that point? So when she told me that, I thought, oh, great, you know, this is going to help me. You know, I've got this circumstance, so hopefully I'll be able to claim on it. And when we got to the nitty gritty of it, unfortunately, I wasn't because I was told that I had a pre-existing condition. And when I asked what's my pre-existing condition, apparently to the bank, cancer is pre-existing. And my argument kept was, I didn't know I had it. It doesn't matter. It's not covered. So I never got that insurance. So it was just keep paying your credit card every month, no matter how hard it was, I had to keep making those payments. And I'm still paying it to this day. Lawyer Alex Blennerhassett says, now that the $126 million settlement has been reached, up to a million Australians could be eligible for compensation and they need to be contacted. When we commence the proceeding, we don't have the information of all of the people who have been impacted by this conduct. That is data that is held by the banks. So the banks know how many people have been sold these products, who they've been sold to. And so typically what happens is a third-party mailing house will distribute the notice on behalf of the Federal Court of Australia. So all of those people will receive a notice that says, you may be entitled to compensation. Please come forward if you wish to claim. That's essentially how that process works. What we also know is that although this notice will be distributed to that many people, not necessarily all of those people will come forward to seek compensation. Some people may have already opted out of the proceeding. They don't wish to take part in the proceedings. Other people may have already received a refund from, for example, the CBA who has engaged in a remediation scheme. So there is quite a bit of theory between, you know, reaching that settlement amount, who will come forward to participate and those different factors. And what is the window in which people, once they have received notice, can claim At this stage, none of that has been determined by the court. It is often about two to three months that people have from receiving the notice to then come forward and seek compensation. And what sort of dollar amount can people expect to receive? Are we talking thousands of dollars? Are we talking hundreds of dollars? What are we talking That's a really great question and it's so tricky to answer because it is so dependent on the individual's circumstances how long the person held the policy, what policy they held, whether they've ever received any compensation back. So while some people may have suffered a loss of 
$1,000, other people may have suffered a loss of $5,000. So the amount that they will receive back will be dependent on how much in total they've paid for premiums. And is it expected that everybody will get back 100% of the premiums that they paid out? No. So it won't be 100% of the premiums that they've paid out. It will be a portion of that amount. How does Slater and Gordon make money out of this litigation? So these class actions were commenced on a no-win, no-fee basis. That means that no group members were required to pay any money upfront to participate in the litigation. And as part of the settlement approval process, Slater and Gordon will seek to recover the costs that they have incurred in running this litigation. So those costs will typically, in a class action, will be independently assessed and reviewed before any approval is made by the court. So how important is this class action settlement? Jared Brody is the CEO of the Consumer Action Law Centre, a community legal service based in Melbourne. I think this class action settlement is really significant for a couple of reasons. One is it's uh, in relation to three of the large banks and there was a, a fourth bank that was uh, subject to a similar settlement last year for another 40 $9 million. So, you know, it's totaling almost $200 million across the four banks. There are different possible strategies for addressing this kind of, let's call it a rip-off. The Consumer Action Law Centre has been very active in this space for a long time. What was its approach? Yeah, we um, for a long time have had concerns about the sales of this insurance, but it was around 2015 that we did a, a research report on it that really shone some sunlight on the practices of consumer credit insurances, junk insurance. So what we did is we help individuals generally uh, in making complaints either to their insurer or bank and also making complaints to the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, the Ombudsman Services for the financial institutions. But uh, to make that more efficient, we actually developed our own complaint generator called demandarefund.com, a website where people can log on and, and answer some questions about their purchase of these products and it will generate a complaint letter directly to the provider referencing the legal claims and seeking uh, redress. And, and that's been a very effective tool for many people. We've had thousands of people use that tool, making claims of upwards of $40 million over the last you know, five or six years. An effective way of just for many, but there's also the class action option. When is one better than the other? Well, I think they probably work together. You know, they all play their part, both individual complaints, I think, regulator investigations to ensure that that there are penalties and other things applied to businesses that do the wrong thing, but then class actions to make sure that those that may not be aware of their rights also have that opportunity to share in any sort of redress. Do you think the class action framework works optimally to maximise compensation for consumers or or are there sometimes concerns either in this case or, or, or in other cases? Look, there are sometimes concerns raised and sometimes in some cases I share those concerns. You know, there has been cases where 
class actions, whether it's through litigation funding by a private litigation funding firm or, or class action lawyers, the, the fees that they are seeking take a, a large proportion of any redress money. And so there might be a limited amount that can be shared by the ultimate consumers affected by wrongdoing. And I think that is a risk in class actions. And I think that's why we really need that strong court oversight of class actions so that every step in the process, the court is assessing, is this appropriate? Is the there sort of a fair share? And is this going to deliver ultimately for, for the group members? And I think that uh, we've seen, in fact, some progress in that area in terms of the fees that are retained by lawyers and litigation firms even come down in some some cases. So I think that's been positive and I think that the court oversight is a really important part of that. And from what you know of this settlement, do you have any concerns or do you think it's a, it's a good one? Oh, look, it is a good one. I think $126 million is, is quite a lot of money. I mean, I guess it's yet to see exactly how many people will be signing up to this class action. I mean, there is some data, I think, the banks have released about, you know, how many customers they had. And so we will be able to see how many customers affected versus how many people are signed up. And I think that's an important indicator to make sure that the class action is reaching everyone who might be affected. And Slater and Gordon are saying, look, there will be independent oversight of their uh, the costs that they submit to the courts. Are you satisfied with that process as well? I think that's a really important integral part of it, that the court play, you know, an active role in ensuring justice is done by making sure that their fees are appropriate and not exploitative in any way. Because it's very different, you know, from a usual, I guess, consumer-lawyer relationship where, you know, you go to the lawyer and you set, you understand what they're going to charge you and uh, you have some sort of input into that, that agreement. You know, th- this has happened often before people even know uh, that there's a case on foot. Jared Brody, CEO of the Consumer Action Law Centre. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to the Law Report. Thanks, Damien. I'm Damien Carrick and this is the Law Report. Up next, part two of our new series, Know Your Rights, where we dig into who's in the right in the eyes of the law when it comes to disputes with neighbours. There needs to be a little bit of give and take between neighbours. There are some trees that are actually nicknamed neighbour haters. In any type of neighbourhood dispute, speak to your neighbours as early as possible and as often as possible. You're not entitled to allow your animal to disturb neighbours. Once you've started that legal process, it can get very uncomfortable with the neighbours. We all love trees. Australia's suburbs are blessed with an abundance of greenery. But can you have too much of a good thing? What can you do if your neighbour's tree is wrecking your property? Know your rights. Know your rights. The most common disputes about trees that damage neighbouring properties, such as interfere with pipes or pools or fences or paving and that sort of thing. Barbara MacDonald is a law professor at Sydney University and she says... If a neighbour's tree damages your property, you can sue them for nuisance because the damage is considered an unreasonable interference with the use and enjoyment of your property. But this doesn't always hold true, as the outcome of the 2020 case of Hale and McAlpin found. 
Yes, well, look, that was a, a case which arose out of a 50-year-old silver elm tree in Wagga Wagga. It had uh, reached the height of 25 metres and the applicant felt that the tree roots from the next-door elm tree were interfering with her stormwater pipes and with her swimming pool and with various other parts, cracked plaster, a boundary wall, internal damage, shifting foundations and so on. And... Um, you know, they had various negotiations, but eventually she approached the commissioner and the Land and Environment Court using the procedure that's set out there. Now, in the end, she only succeeded in obtaining an order that the neighbour cut the tree down to a height of one metre. She didn't succeed in her application for, I think it was nearly $40,000 worth of damage that she said had been suffered. Why, why not? I mean, why not if, if, if you could show that the damage was caused by the roots? Yes, well, first, and because of the age of the house the uh, and other conditions, the Commissioner wasn't absolutely satisfied on the balance of probabilities that, you know, this is what had caused it. So the fact that it was a kind of a maybe a creaking old house, that made a difference. Yes, that's right. Uh, and expert evidence is very important here. And that expert evidence, um, often you have on-site uh, hearings where, you know, the commissioner or the mediator or the, or the judge, depending on where you are in the country, they'll, they'll come and they'll be kind of structural engineers and also arborists as well. Yes. These are kind of tree experts who can yes. talk to about what, 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 you know, the roots are doing, the branches are doing, what dangers are posed. So, yes, you do have to rely on arborists. And, of course, you also assume that they are familiar with your local government rules and regulations about what you can take down without permission and and where you need permission. So you you do need to um, engage a responsible and well-qualified arborist to advise you on these sorts of matters. But the other point was the liability of the neighbour. You know, you only become liable for something which is naturally there or which you didn't plant if you know that it, it's a nuisance and you fail to take reasonable steps. So the Commissioner put quite a lot of emphasis on the lack of knowledge of the neighbour about certain matters. So, um, so because the tree was there, maybe before the neighbour moved in... Yes, absolutely. Yes, exactly. That... <laughs> She yes, wasn't sorry. responsible for the monster that it became. Yes, well, that's right. And these days there are lots of local government rules and regulations aimed at protecting heritage trees or the leafy feel of a particular suburb. In the 2020 case of Donnelly and Hunters Hill Council, there was a clash between the council and the homeowners. Yes, look, that was an interesting case. I mean, Mr and Mrs Donnelly had a very old house. Um, Hunters Hill was a very much a heritage area with old sandstone houses. The very large, the enormous camphor laurel outside their house on the footpath, it was 90 to 100 years old, the roots were causing the, the fence to crack up. It was causing a lot of a lot of damage to their house. The sandstone entrance gate, you know, wouldn't shut. The sandstone blocks on the fence, lifting internal sandstone paving, which can be dangerous to entrance uh, and so on, a risk a liability to the occupiers. They requested the council to remove the camphor laurel and, and the council said, yes, we will, but then neighbours and other residents objected to the tree going and so the council revoked their decision. So Dr Donnelly, the, the owner, then uh, sued the council. He sued them for nuisance, saying that it was causing substantial damage and unreasonable damage to his property and he succeeded. They were ordered to pay $40,000 to him in damages and to remove the tree, but most expensively they were liable for his 
there's costs and the costs of each party of going to court, five-day hearing in this matter, you know, were $100,000 each. So it was a very expensive process altogether. While having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in court might seem huge, these decisions around trees can actually be fatal. There have been some instances where councils have refused permission um, to to a resident to chop down a tree on their property and then the tree, had, tragically in one case, in the Shoalhaven Council in the south of uh, New South Wales, uh, Mr Gordon Timms had asked for a tree to be cut down, a 25 metre spotted gum. The council said no and said he'd be fined if he did so and tragically one of the trees fell on his house and he was killed instantly. There was an action brought by his widow against the council and she succeeded. The court saying that the council there had acquired a duty of care. I think that's a, 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 a warning to councils that, you know, if they refuse permission, and again, they should only do so on expert evidence, I think, and residents need to get expert evidence as to whether a tree is dangerous or not. Disputes around trees aren't only about civil damages. There are also cases where neighbours face criminal charges for poisoning or cutting down trees on their neighbour's property. This was the case of Hunters Hill Council and Ms Lou. Ms Lou got an arborist to advise her and she cut down two substantial cheese trees which were on a neighbouring property, presumably because they were interfering with her sunlight or something like that, I'm not really sure, or view. Hunters Hill is a very leafy suburb of Sydney, but it does also, many houses have lovely views of the harbour. So I'm not really sure why she cut it down in this case, or wanted them cut down. But this was a case where she cut down trees on a neighbour's property, committing trespass against the neighbour very clearly, and there would be an action there. But this was a criminal action, and she was fined $48,000 and would have a criminal conviction on her record. I mean, in cases like this, the maximum penalty is $500,000. And the fight over blocking views is a really common one between neighbours. But is the law ever on your side when it comes to keeping a view? The law is absolutely clear here and has been for centuries. There is no right to a view that the fundamental common law will protect. You can't sue a nuisance because somebody has interfered with your view or cut out your harbour view. This is an area where you can often read about trees mysteriously being poisoned or ringbarked or just being removed. One local council in Sydney took the step of covering the poisoned tree with a black shroud, which um, made the view even worse. Now, you you know, your, your view of the harbour was not interrupted by a tree, but by a black shroud over the tree, which was pretty ugly and would remain for as long as the tree was safe to leave up. But look, the point is that you need to get permission. So final words of advice, um, if you have a tree's causing damage on your property, what steps can you take? Yes, well, if a tree is causing damage or is about to cause damage to your property or is at risk of causing personal injury, I think you do need to take action straight away and notify the neighbour of this so that it's quite clear that the neighbour has knowledge of the risk and of the damage that's happening um, and can't hide behind a lack of knowledge and also um, get onto the council, the local council straight away because councils are not just concerned with their own property, public property, but they're also concerned with disputes between neighbours and and they may be able to intervene here. But um, otherwise, depending on which state you're in, take advantage of the procedures that are now set up um, under various acts to, say, approach 
the equivalent of the Land Environment Court or your local court to get an order that your neighbour do something to remedy the, the risk or the damage. I suppose general advice for owners, remember that you know the law of nuisance and the law of neighbourhood is live and let live, try and negotiate. Don't engage in conduct which might later be seen as malicious because that would count against you um, when the court was deciding whether or not your behaviour was reasonable and whether or not you were making reasonable use of your property. And I suppose generally, get permission. Next time on Know Your Rights, Pets. What happens when your neighbour hates the dog that you love? If your dog repeatedly barks, you'll get a visit from the council dog whisperer to talk to you about it and ultimately fines can be imposed under legislation. That's next week in part three of our special series, Know Your Rights. That's the Law Report for this week. A big thank you to producers Christina Kukolia, Maria Tickle and to technical producer Brendan O'Neill. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. Hello, it's Richard Ady here. I'm a huge fan of The Law Report. I never miss it. I love the way that Damien so expertly guides you through something that maybe you didn't even know about, but he does his thing and now you do. We try to do something similar on the money. Technically, our focus is economics, but really it's about how different things connect to each other. If you like The Law Report, and you do, you might like the money. You can find it on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.